0: I love the Lord, because he has heard my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore I will call upon him as long as I live. The pains of death surrounded me, and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. All right, we're in Numbers chapter 15 today, we're in uh, verses 1 through 21, this is entitled When You Have Come Into the Land. Verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have come into the land, you are to inhabit, which I am giving to you. And you make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice, to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering in your appointed feasts, to make a sweet aroma to the Lord from the herd or the flock. Then he who presents his offering to the Lord shall bring a grain offering of one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hin of oil. And one-fourth of a hin of wine as a drink offering you shall prepare with the burnt offering or the sacrifice for each lamb. Or for a ram you shall prepare as a grain offering two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-third of a hin of oil. And as a drink offering you shall offer one-third of a hin of wine as a sweet aroma to the Lord. And when you prepare a young bull as a burnt offering or as a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a peace offering to the Lord, then shall be offered with the young bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a half-hen of oil. Then you shall bring as the drink offering half a hen of wine as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Thus it shall be done for each young bull, for each ram or for each lamb or young goat, according to the number that you prepare. So you shall do with everyone according to their number. All who are native born shall do these things in this manner, in presenting an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And if a stranger dwells with you or whoever is among you throughout your generations and would present an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so shall he do. One ordinance shall be for you of the assembly and for the stranger who dwells with you, an ordinance forever throughout your generations as you are. So shall the stranger be before the Lord. One law and one custom shall be for you and for the stranger who dwells with you. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land to which I bring you, then it shall be when you eat of the bread of the land that you shall offer up a heave offering to the Lord. You shall offer up a cake of the first of your ground meal as a heave offering. As a heave offering of the threshing floor, so shall you offer it. Of the first of your ground meal, you shall give to the Lord a heave offering throughout your generations. In their commentary on these two short sections that we're going to look at today, the pulpit commentary says, the two enactments have the same supplemental and humanly speaking trivial character. In other words, they simply fill in supplementary information from other passages already given, mostly from Leviticus. They then mention their trivial character. But qualify that with the parenthetical and otherwise unexplained words, humanly speaking. Are the words trivial? Before beginning, would anyone like to present their thoughts on what we just read and analyze them up here for me? No. Okay, unless you cheated by reading the sermon in advance, the verses do seem repetitive in nature. We've seen these concepts introduced elsewhere, and we've probably forgotten most of what we learned. That's okay. Our minds were molded to know that what it was, it was of value in those passages, and we can go back and review any time that we wish. But for now, we can simply consider what the book of Hebrews says about the things of the law. In Hebrews 9, verse 9, the author says of the topic of the first tabernacle and its associated rites and rituals that it was symbolic for the present time. There, the word he uses, which is translated as symbolic, is parabole. It is the same word translated as parable in the Gospels. The author is saying that the things of the Old Covenant, such as the layout, structure, and materials of the sanctuary— All of the rites associated with that sanctuary and even the days associated with those rites, such as the Day of Atonement, were teaching aids and living lessons which only figuratively pointed to what Christ would do. The people of Israel were living out a 1,500-year-long parable every time they interacted with these priestly things. And that's why I'm so adamant about telling you that the law of Moses is done It is fulfilled, it is complete. It says it very clearly three times in the book of Hebrews and implicitly at least a dozen where it says it is annulled, it is set aside and it is obsolete. Paul in the book of Colossians says that it is nailed to the cross. It is over. So when people say, oh the fall feasts of Israel are still yet to be observed, they are actually committing a heresy because they're saying that Christ did not fulfill this law which he fulfilled. If he didn't fulfill it then we've got the wrong Messiah, okay? So please understand that. If we hold fast to, seek to understand and repeat the parables that Jesus spoke and the parables that he lived out, doesn't it make sense that we should seek to understand the parables that point to that same wonderful Lord? Our text first comes from Matthew 13. It's verses 34 and 35. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Of the verses of our first section today, Adam Clark, someone who I respect immensely and quote from time to time, but who is often overly legalistic, says the following about the requirement of the offerings and sacrifices to be made by the Israelites. He says, All strangers, all that came to sojourn in the land, were required to conform to it. And it was right that those who did conform to it should have equal rights and privileges with the Hebrews themselves, which we find was the case. But under the Christian dispensation, as no particular form of worship is prescribed the types and ceremonies of the mosaic institution being all fulfilled unlimited toleration should be allowed and while the sacred writings are made the basis of the worship offered to God every man should be allowed to worship according to his own conscience for in this respect everyone is Lord of himself accountable to none but to his conscience and his God alone It was hard for me to imagine that he said these things. He often puts worship and worshipers into boxes that are very restrictive. But here, he casts that aside and he shows that all of the rigidity of the law is set aside and we can worship in spirit and in truth. And indeed, if you go to a hundred cultures, there will be a hundred individual ways that they work their culture right into their style of worship. As long as it doesn't violate scripture, it is acceptable. And why not? The parables of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ. This will be seen again in our verses today. If they are fulfilled, and they are, then they are obsolete, just as Hebrews says of them. We are not bound to conduct our affairs in the church except in the honor of one who accomplished all these things for us. Today's passage is one which pointed to Christ as a parable. He, in his person and in his life, fulfilled the meaning and purpose of these shadows or parables. Let us give him glory in the way that we feel is our (laughs) best way to do so. Such freedom for us is revealed as a marvelous part of his superior word. And so, let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have just two thoughts for you today. The first is one law and one custom. It's verses 1 through 16. Verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, It is completely uncertain when these words were spoken to Moses, and dating of them by scholars goes from just after the departure from Sinai all the way through until just before entrance into the land of Canaan. Some liberal scholars say that only parts of the coming words were actually given by Moses, and that some of what is stated here is actually amended from the time after Ezekiel. The stupidity of that isn't worth thinking or contemplating. It says, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, and there is nothing to support anything but a literal reception of these words directly from the Lord to Moses. As to why they're placed here, regardless of when they were received by Moses, the words of verse two help to explain the matter. They begin with verse two, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the words are to the children of Israel it does not say speak to all the congregation as if the people needed to know them and apply them to their lives right then at that moment. Rather, they are for all of Israel at any time, but not necessarily for the congregation alive at that time. In other words, if a principal said speak to the students in your classes, the teachers would know that it was something for the students at the school at that time. However, if the principal said, speak to the Riverview Rams, which is where I went, the Riverview Rams, it would be something that applied to all students at all times. This is the idea here. That this is certain is because the Lord continues with, verse 2 continues, when you have come into the land you are to inhabit. What just occurred in the previous chapter? It was a rebellion against the Lord and a pronouncement of judgment upon the people, There the Lord said, The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who are numbered, according to your entire number from twenty years old and above, except for Caleb the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you... Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. The Lord judged, the Lord convicted, and the Lord sentenced. The generation of those twenty and above would not come into the land of Canaan. However, those nineteen and below, along with Caleb and Joshua, would enter according to the promise of the Lord. It is a certainty that Israel is not wholly rejected. And the words here are to provide assurance that what is to be mandated will be possible. The things mandated require possession and cultivation of the land. They cannot be accomplished while dwelling in the wilderness. And so there's an assurance that entry and possession is coming. An important point is to be considered as stated by the scholar Almgarden. He said, The fighting men of Israel had fallen under the judgment of Jehovah, and the sacred history therefore was no longer concerned with them, whilst the youth in whom the life and hope of Israel were preserved had as yet no history at all, whereas those who left Egypt had a history which they looked back on and whined about, a new generation would have only their time in the wilderness as a point of reference, only a limited number of people probably from about mid-teens to 19, would have any real memory of Egypt at all. Thus, the words here are a great hope for those born and raised in the wilderness. Someday, they will receive a land. And the guarantee of that is, verse 2 going on, which I am giving to you. The children of Israel are being given the land previously promised. No, not those under the sentence of death in the wilderness, but Israel will still be given the land. The promise has not been revoked, nor would it ever be. Leviticus 26 states this with absolute certainty. The land is the Lord's. He has given it to Israel, and they may dwell in it when they are obedient, and they may not when they are disobedient. As a part of the surety, the words ahead are stated, verse 3, and you make an offering by fire to the Lord. The implication here, based on the words of the previous verse, is that these offerings were not conducted in the wilderness. Indeed, they could not be as will be seen in the verses ahead. An offering made by fire signifies an offering that is burnt in part or in whole upon the altar. Leviticus, in particular, went into great detail concerning each of them. These continued to be defined by saying, verse 3 continues, a burnt offering or a sacrifice. These sacrifices and offerings were carefully detailed in Leviticus. However, there are now provisions which will be added to them. What is being referred to here does not include sin offerings or trespass offerings, but only to the two classes of one, burnt offerings, and two, peace offerings. These are further defined as, verse 3 continues, to fulfill a vow. When making a vow to the Lord... This would be a votive offering. A vow is made and the offering is presented in fulfillment of that. Such a vow is normally made in times of need, such as, oh God, if you get me out of this, I will present an offering to you. Verse three continues, or as a free will offering, such an offering would be made in times of prosperity or in gratitude to the Lord for his provision. How many of you have done that? You've been blessed abundantly and you say, I'm going to give something to the Lord because of his goodness to me. Verse three continues, or in your appointed feasts, feasts, such as the feasts of first fruits required products of the land, which has been cultivated to be presented before the Lord. This was not possible in the wilderness. Whether Israel celebrated any of these feasts or not can only be speculated on. Did those who came out of Egypt who were circumcised still observe the Passover? That was discussed in a previous sermon. But in the end, certain things, including some entire feasts, could not be observed due to the requirements of the feast. It is absolutely certain that the Sabbath, which is a feast, continued to be observed throughout their time in the wilderness. Burnt offerings and sacrifices were offered during these feasts. All of these mentioned were for a specific purpose, which was, verse 3 continues, to make a sweet aroma to the Lord from the herd or the flock. The idea of a sweet aroma is that which is pleasing. In the case of such offerings, they were from the herd or from the flock. They were clean animals, each of which pictures Christ in one way or another, as has been seen and as will be partially redescribed as we go along in today's passage. Verse 4, then he who presents his offering to the Lord shall bring a grain offering of one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of oil. Various animal offerings are going to be described. Before actually naming the first, the grain offering that is to accompany it is specified. In this case, it is to be one tenth of an ephah of fine flour. The flour is solet, or fine flour. This comes from an unused root meaning to strip. Thus, it is fine flour indicating purity. It is, as previously seen, reflective of the purity of Christ. This was to be mixed with one fourth of a hint of oil. The ephah is a dry measure. The hen is a liquid measure. The mixing of the oil in the grain pictures the complete intermingling of the Spirit into Christ. I hope you remember these things from Leviticus. If not, go back and watch all of those sermons again. But remember, everything we are seeing is a parable of the coming Christ. That's what we're being instructed on here. Verse 5, and one-fourth of a hen of wine as a drink offering. You shall prepare with the burnt offering or the sacrifice for each lamb. Along with the grain offering, there is also to be a drink offering of one-fourth of a hint of wine. The nesek, or drink offering, comes from a word meaning to cover. The idea is that when the drink offering is poured out, it will cover that onto which it is poured. The drink offering is of yayin, or wine. As a review, in the Bible, wine symbolizes the merging together of a cultural expression, or cultural expressions, into a result. The thing that ought to happen can happen, symbolized by the wine. In the drink offering, it signifies rest and celebration. A drink offering is only offered after entry into the land of promise. It is a land of defeated enemies. Thus, it is a land of rest. Only when rest is provided would the Lord accept the wine libations. And so, during the time in the wilderness, they were not offered. Further, a drink offering is poured out in its entirety to the Lord, No part of it was drunk by the priest or the people. This signifies that the people were partially excluded from the full blessings of the Lord while still under the law of Moses. This is what Jesus was referring to in Matthew. He said this, Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Jesus was speaking of the law and grace, The new wine is the new dispensation of grace to come. The old wine was the dispensation of the law. If one were to introduce the new concept into the old, it wouldn't work because the two are incompatible. Only if one put new wine into the new wineskins and received the new wine would the mind be changed. Only in Christ does man truly enter into God's victory and rest. This is why Paul could say in Philippians 2, Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul's labors in the vineyard anticipated his victory and rest in Christ. This is made all the more evident to his words to Timothy He said, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Does everybody here love the thought of the appearing of Jesus Christ? If you're more concerned about somebody's coming wedding or your granddaughter being born or anything above the coming of Jesus Christ, I have to tell you that your priorities are out of whack. He is the source of all things and therefore all good things are found in him. There's nothing here, nothing that is worth waiting to see the face of Jesus Christ. Absolutely nothing. Finally, in this verse, it specifies these for a lamb. The word is kebeth, it means to dominate. It pictures Christ who dominated over sin and the law for his people. Verse 6, or for a ram, you shall prepare as a grain offering two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-third of a hen of oil. Next is specified an ayil, or ram. Ayil indicates strength. It pictures that Christ's strength was expended in the accomplishment of his work, It reflects his total commitment when he offered all of his natural strength to his father he is fully sufficient to redeem the grain offering is larger now because the animal is also larger there's a proportional increase with each larger animal instead of one tenth and a fourth it is now two tenths and a third and verse 7 and as a drink offering you shall offer one-third of a hint of wine as a sweet aroma to the Lord Instead of one-fourth, it is now one-third. Once again, there is an increase in offering based on the increase in size of the animal. The wording here, though, could be better. By saying, as a sweet aroma to the Lord, it seems as if the wine is that sweet aroma. Rather, it is the entire offering of verses 6 and 7. A period, instead of a comma, would help, or a short paraphrase explaining this could also be of help. Next is an even larger and more expensive animal, verse 8. And when you prepare a young bull... As a burnt offering or as a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a peace offering to the Lord. The third animal specified is Ben-Bakar or son of an ox. The word is from the verb bakar which means to inquire or to seek out. Christ seeks out those he redeems just as the Lord is said to seek out his sheep in the book of Ezekiel chapter 34. In this verse, the Lord re-specifies the purposes as a burnt offering or as a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a peace offering to the Lord. In such cases, verse 9, then shall be offered with the young bull a grain offering of three tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a half a hin of oil. With this larger animal, another increase is made. Three-tenths for a grain offering and a half a hint of oil mixed into it. Also, verse 10, and you shall bring as the drink offering a half a hint of wine as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Like the first two instances, the size of the drink offering is the same as the amount of oil added to the grain offering. This one goes from one-third for the ram to one-half for the bull. Also, the same issue of verse 7 is repeated here. The sweet aroma to the Lord is the entire offering, not just the drink offering of this verse. Clarification is needed to avoid confusion. However, the really important point to see is Christ in each of these three animals, in the grain offering mixed with oil and in the drink offering. Regardless as to the wealth of the owner or the intent of the offerer, the same picture is seen in these additions to each offering. Although the aspect of the work of Christ differs in each animal. And why is that? It's because of what we talked about in the book of Leviticus. Each animal is specified to show something about Christ, and that was detailed in that book. As a curiosity for those who like such things, and which is missed in many translations, verse 8 says, When you prepare in the second person singular. Verse 9 then says, Then he shall offer in the third person singular. And then verse 10 says, and you shall bring in the second person singular again of this Kyle notes. He says, it is certainly striking and unusual, but not so offensive as to render it necessary to alter it. He says it as if it were any weirder, one would be compelled to change the text to help things out. The pulpit commentary says this about it. The rapid interchange of the second and third persons in these verses is awkward, And perplexing no doubt it is due to some sufficiently simple cause in the indicting of the original record but we are not in position even to guess at its nature meanwhile the broken construction remains a witness to the faithfulness with which the record has been handed down in other words there is this very hard to understand change in the person from second person to third person to second person And they say that shows the nature of the Hebrew people that even though they didn't understand why this was in there, they still faithfully recorded it in that manner instead of changing it or amending it or even putting a comment on it as to what they thought it might have to do with. They simply were faithful to bring God's word down to us in the form that we have today. Nobody else that I found even commented on this change. But I got to tell you what, it doesn't seem so perplexing to me. There are things the priest does, and there are things expected of the offerer in the process. If one looks at these things in the light of Jesus Christ, God prepares a body in Christ. That's recorded in Hebrews 10, verse 5. Christ offers himself to God. That is Hebrews 10, verse 7. And God brings about the intended effect in Christ, Hebrews 2, verse 17. And so it resolves exactly what they say, we can't know what this means. The Lord is simply instructing us as if he were showing Moses and Israel what would occur in Jesus Christ. It is a treasure tucked away in the detail. Verse 11, thus it shall be done for each young bull, for each ram, or for each lamb or young goat. How do we know that's pointing to Christ? It's because of exactly what I just said. We have the three animals all prefiguring different aspects of Christ's work. The second, third, second will apply to all of those offerings And they all only point to Jesus Christ. And therefore, that is what is going on. Although this is an explanatory verse here, verse 11, concerning the offerings that each type of animal is to be accompanied with the corresponding size of grain and drink offering, the verse adds in the ez, or young goat, not previously mentioned. That would be in the place of the lamb mentioned in verse 5. The word ez comes from azaz, meaning to prevail. It again looks to the work of Jesus Christ, who prevailed in his ministry, accomplishing all that was set before him to redeem man. Verse 12, according to the number that you prepare, so shall you do with everyone according to their number. This verse is similar to verse 11, but it is dealing with the number of offerings, not the types. In other words, if one gives 10 young bulls, then for every animal offered, a corresponding offering of grain and drink offerings were to be made according to that type of individual animal. One could not offer 10 bulls and give just one grain and drink offering for all 10. No way, Jose. Verse 13, all who are native-born. You know, the Lord sees the wickedness of the human heart. And unless he put that in there, somebody would say, I'm giving 10 bulls. And then he gives one grain offering and it gets off cheap, right? The Lord is making sure that we don't do that because all of this is pointing to what? To, that's right, to Jesus. Verse 13, all who are native-born shall do these things in this manner, in presenting an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Kauha ha is all the natives. The word comes from zarach, signifying to irradiate or shoot forth beams from a source. It thus is referring to any who are native Israelites because they shoot forth from the land. If they made such offerings, they were required when presenting these offerings to ensure that they brought the specified grain and drink offerings. Only together were they then truly considered a sweet aroma to the Lord. The typology of Christ and of what God would do in Christ was to be maintained at all times. But this went beyond Israel to those who had joined themselves to Israel in these sacrifices and offerings. Verse 14, And if a stranger dwells with you, or whoever is among you throughout your generations, and would present an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so shall he do two classes of people are mentioned here one is the ger or sojourner who is sojourning among the Israelites the word comes from a root signifying to turn aside from the road as in for lodging or for any other purpose it is a person who has come among the people and stayed the other is whoever if he happens to be among the Israelites it applies to him It is basically an all-inclusive statement concerning any and all who desire to make an offering to the Lord. None were forbidden, and all were required to do as Israel did. It demonstrates an exclusivity before God who can only be approached or pleased through one means in these things, but at the same time, any and all, whether Jew or Gentile, could in fact approach through that means. As long as the typology of Christ is maintained, all who desire to come could come. It bears the same spirit as the words of Revelation 22, verse 17. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Yes, all could offer but there is only one proper and acceptable way to do so. That is again reflected in the next words. Verse 15: One ordinance shall be for you of the assembly and for the stranger who dwells with you. Ha-ka-ha-ku-ka-ak-hat. <speaking in Hebrew> the assembly ordinance one. That's it. The Lord says it pertains to Israel and it pertains to the sojourner who is sojourning among them as a single assembly ordinance. There is an inclusivity. And there is an exclusivity working out at the same time. It is exactly what the New Testament reveals concerning our relationship with God. There is no sacrifice or offering acceptable to God apart from Jesus Christ, either by Jew or by Gentile. And there is no person, either Jew or Gentile, whose offering is not accepted by God when that offering is Christ. And this will never change. Verse 15 continues, An ordinance forever throughout your generations. ordinance forever throughout your generations. First is the reality of the covenant being spoken of. The word olam or forever signifies to the vanishing point. In this case, when the covenant is fulfilled in Christ, the shadows of these rituals are ended in Christ. The law has reached its vanishing point. However, the precept is forever as it is fulfilled in Christ. What the shadows prefigured is now realized in him. And so the truth of the substance is forever. God accepts only one in Christ in this regard, and no one is accepted apart from Christ forever. As it says, verse 15 continues, As you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. Thank God for Jesus Christ who allows us to, To come near God in thanks, in praise, and in offering of those things. God accepts those things from us because of Christ. Verse 16, one law and one custom shall be for you and for the stranger who dwells with you. The Hebrew follows a logical progression that is not followed in any English translation. English translations say one law and one custom, one law and one rule, one law and one ordinance, one law and one regulation, and so on. It makes the responsibility and the burden solely that of the offerer. However, this doesn't appear to be what is going on. In the previous verse, it said ordinance forever throughout your generations. That is the hukat or main body of what has been said. It applies to all, native and foreigner. Here it says, Torah achat umishpat echad, literally, instruction one and judgment one. The Torah or instruction is for the responsibility and burden of the people. The mishpat or judgment is the response of the Lord based on the people's adherence to the instruction. There is one instruction for the conduct of these sacrifices and offerings, and there is one judgment in their being offered. The instruction is applied equally to both the native and the stranger, and the judgment is applied by the Lord equally upon the native and the stranger. It is an obvious and clear reference to all coming solely through Christ and God judging all solely on their adherence to Christ. It is Christ, all Christ, and only Christ for all. For the first time in this chapter, one scholar, John Gill, who lived in the 1700s, also sees a hint of Christ here. When I read his words, I put my thumbs up and I had to say out loud, good job, John. The entire passage is looked to him, and I'm glad he began to realize this. He said, it is for Israelites and proselytes, which is said to invite and encourage the latter and may have a distant view to the calling of the Gentiles in gospel times, when there should be no difference between Jews and Gentiles called by grace in matters of religion, but would be one in Christ. And then he cites Galatians three, verse twenty-eight. What he cited is exactly what this passage is intended to show. And before I read you Galatians three, twenty-eight, I want to tell you that Doug, who is a mind reader, he reads my mind every time I type a sermon. He is there in Ireland getting ready to paint a painting for today's sermon so that we can post it as our thumbnail on YouTube. And what did he post it from? Galatians 3 verse 28 that guy is astonishing he is a theologian in his own right I don't know why he didn't do that instead of whatever he did with most of his life He was in the service and in all these other things, but that guy knows his theology Here's what it says in Galatians three twenty There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus The very size of the animals and the proportions of grain and drink offerings prescribed revealed this as well. Paul's writings show that there are no distinctions in Christ. One can be rich or poor, slave or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile, strong or weak, or any other such distinction, and yet be found to have no difference in value when in Christ. An offering to God, an offering for peace one which signifies fellowship, so sweet. It stems from our daily trod, and in Christ it shall never cease, because in him our fellowship is complete. Cleanse us in our inward parts, lead us in your peace. May we join together with you, O precious Lord. Purify our minds and hearts, may this joy never cease. Through Christ may we always be in one accord. Thank you for the cross from whence atonement came. Upon that offering we can now add an offering of peace. Together they point to the same great name. Both look to Jesus where joyous fellowship will never, never cease. Our second thought today is a heave offering to the Lord. It's verses 17 through 21. Verse 17, again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, the often stated friendly and familiar words of introducing a new section into this precious word of God is again given. Yehovah el Moshe Lemor. And spoke Yehovah to Moses saying, the New King James version chose to say again, the Lord spoke, but the Hebrew simply says, and something different is to be detailed, which is verse 18, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land, which I bring you, the words begin in the same way as verse two, but then what Moses is told to say differs. In verse two, it said, when you have come into the land, you are to inhabit, which I am giving to you. Now it says, when you come into the land, which I bring you, it is a note of confirmation that the Lord will be the one to ensure that they attain what he has promised. There is a land they will inhabit. That land is promised to them. And the Lord is the one who will bring them into that land. What a picture of the promises of Christ for humanity. These two verses, separated by many verses, show us the promise of God in Christ. Paradise was lost, but it is a land intended for man to dwell in. A return to it is promised, and it is the Lord who makes that possible. He is the one to bring us again to that land. For now, once the people are brought into Canaan, verse 19, then it will be when you eat of the bread of the land that you shall offer up a heave offering to the Lord, This is again addressed only to those who will actually enter. Those who are under the sentence of death in the desert are not included in these words whenever they were spoken. It is the others who are being given this surety. To eat the bread of the land implies that they will be in the land. To offer this offering every year implies that they will possess the land. For those who were born in the wilderness, this would be a great delight to anticipate. They would have never tasted bread, and they had never worked their own fields. This is a promise and a guarantee that it will come about. The previous section dealt with offerings and sacrifices, which covered three main categories one, to fulfill a vow, two, as a freewill offering, and three, in your appointed feasts. Here we have what is also a part of a threefold harvest offering. The first was seen in that of the first sheaf offered in Leviticus 23 verse 11 during the Feast of Firstfruits. The second is the one that's being detailed right now, it is a dough offering. The third is that of the bread offering offered in Leviticus 23 verse 17 during the Feast of Weeks. The one now, the dough offering, is instructed first to be offered up as a terumah or a heave offering to the Lord. Terumah comes from Rum, meaning high exalted or to rise it is to be presented before the Lord and lifted up for Israel it says verse 20 you shall offer up a cake of the first of your ground meal as a heave offering here we have a new and very rare word Arisa that comes from a root which means to grind up to pulverize and so on thus it is translated as ground meal It is found only here and in the next verse and then in Nehemiah 10 verse 37 and Ezekiel 44 verse 30. That's it. It is always prefixed by the word reshit or first. It is the first in time, place, order, rank, and so on. Thus it is considered the best. Again, it repeats that they shall offer it up as a heave offering, but in the form of a challah or cake. That comes from the word halal, which means to pierce. Thus it is a punctured cake of the first ground up dough. It is, verse 20 continues, as a heave offering of the threshing floor, so shall you offer it up. The goren, or threshing floor, is a smooth, even, and hard surface where sheaves were brought and then crushed in one of various ways, such as having animals tread over it to crack the scaly chaff which surrounds the grain. The grain would come out, and then all of this would be picked up by winnowing forks and cast into the air. The wind would blow away all of the chaff, leaving only the grain. The threshing floor in both testaments signifies judgment. John the Baptist spoke of Christ, who would come to separate sinners from believers. The believers would be gathered as the precious grain for their place in heaven, and the sinners, meaning the chaff, would be burned in the fires of hell. The people are said to take the first of the pulverized grain and offer it up as a heave offering to the Lord. This is again stated in our final verse of the day. Verse 21, it finishes with, Of the first of your ground meal, you shall give to the Lord a heave offering throughout your generations. Of the first of your pulverized grain, you shall give to Jehovah an offering of raising up throughout your generations. The entire thought, every single word of this verse points directly to Jesus Christ. It is the first, and thus it is considered the best of the grain harvest. Christ is called the firstborn among many brethren according to Romans 8 verse 29. The grain is crushed, Christ is said to have been crushed in Isaiah 53, verse 5, for our iniquities. It is a cake of challah, or bread which is pierced. Christ, our bread of life, is said to have been pierced in Psalm 22, verse 16, and Isaiah 12, verse 10, and which is confirmed in John 19, verse 31. He is given to Jehovah as such, and he was rum, or lifted up as an offering for us in that capacity. First on the cross of Calvary, as is stated in Isaiah 52, verse 13, and then he is raised up and esteemed among those he is redeemed. He becomes our terumah, or heave offering in our acceptance of him. And this is an offering of the threshing floor, the place of judgment, where sinners are separated from those who believe. As I mentioned in our introduction... The pulpit commentary said of the two sections of these 21 verses, the two enactments have the same supplemental and humanly speaking trivial character. It is so very good that they qualified their thought with the words, humanly speaking. There is nothing trivial at all in the verses that we have read. On the surface, they seem as such, and they are held in low esteem by most. Read maybe once and never again, or they are quickly passed over by those who read them each time they go through the Bible. But there's nothing trivial about them. In one sermon of 21 verses, there have been several dozen, if not more, pictures of Christ. We have been given secrets in living parables of those who for 1,500 years made their offerings to the Lord in anticipation of the coming of the Lord, who would then be the very fulfillment of what these offerings pictured. Trivial? Not in the slightest. Without the fulfillment of what these things picture, there would only be certain anticipation of death followed by eternal separation from God. As He is the source of all that is good, it means an eternity of nothing which is good. What a great and marvelous Creator who has so lovingly fashioned redemptive history that we can find His Son in a thousand ways before we even get to the story of His coming. This so that we can be assured that at his coming, the very thing that would bring about the pictures were meant for us to see. Grace, mercy, restoration, future hope, and certain glorification. Going through today's verses would have been a ton easier on me if I had simply spent an hour typing up a fun life application sermon about something irrelevant to the text. You would have gone home uplifted, encouraged, and not the least bit edified about the surety that you need when times get rough. But in knowing the details about Christ, tucked away in every word and every thought, the promises which are given after Christ's coming are all the more certain to us. Be confident of this, and be confident that your reliance on the grace of Jesus Christ for your hope of future glory is absolutely assured. And if you've never called on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you don't have that assurance. As I just said, these things all point to Christ. So when he came, we can go back and we can look at these things and we can say, I am certain that this is picturing Jesus Christ. So we don't have any doubt about it. We know that he is the Messiah, right? Now, the Hebrew people have rejected that. They don't study in light of Christ and so none of this makes any sense. Read Hebrew commentaries and they'll say, this doesn't make any sense. But when you put it in the light of Christ, it all makes sense. Okay, so now you understand that. This is picturing Jesus. So we have a sure hope in Jesus. But what does Jesus promise us? Not a Maserati. I'm not talking about that. Okay, go over to Joel Osteen's church and you'll hear that. I'm talking about what does Jesus Christ promise us. He promises us something ahead. No matter how bad it gets, and Paul had probably about as bad of a life as anybody, he was still overjoyed because he understood that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of these old types and pictures, and therefore what he told us is coming is going to come. Nothing could shatter his faith. And when we're having terrible days, terrible times, Paul, punished, beaten with rods, beaten with Roman flagons, he was in shipwrecks, he was hungry, he was cold, he was alone, his friends abandoned him, go on and on and on reading about what Paul went through, and he never loses his hope. And that's what we need to have as well so that when we know that this is speaking of Jesus and we're sure that he's the Messiah, we can also have the confidence that what he has promised will come about. Please call on Jesus. Understand that we have the surest word of all. There's nothing missing. Even when we come to these odd passages that go from second person to third person, you think, what is that all about? It's about Jesus. We have the confidence in God because we have the confidence in Christ. I know that times are tough for some people here. I know that from... A thousand emails and from phone calls and from tears. We've got Mr. Magnuson's wife is in the the hospital right now. And she's old, right? I mean, she's not a, a young spring chicken, and we don't know what's going to happen. And when you're old, your your system is already compromised. And so we need to understand that bad things might happen, but we would pray that's not the case. We've got Jim's daughter who's in the hospital, and she's gone through something where she, if they did not give her two units of blood, she would not have lived. So thank God that we're in this time when we can do those things, and we can be thankful and praise the Lord for those things. This is what this, believe it or not, this obscure passage that nobody wants to read, and they just get through as quickly as possible, is showing us exactly what I'm talking to you about right now. Surety in Christ. That's what this should tell all of you so if you haven't called on Jesus today is the day to do it because he will give you that surety that you lack at this point in your life our closing verse comes from Romans 8 it's verses 31 and 32 what then shall we say to these things here it goes if God is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, our room, our teruma, our sacrifice of lifting, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that marvelous? Yes. Next week, Numbers 15, 22 through 41. To these things you should be conforming. It's entitled Remembering and Performing. That'll be our 29th number sermon. And I'll tell you that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you are lost in a desert, wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there. He's carefully leading you to the land of promise, and so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Poem, and we'll be done. When you have come into the land, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, these are the words he was to him then relaying. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have come into the land, you are to inhabit, and which I am giving you, please then, you are to understand. And you make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering, one that will in these suffice or in your appointed feasts, to make a sweet aroma to the Lord from the herd or the flock, according to this word. Then he who presents his offering to the Lord shall bring a grain offering. Of one-tenth of an ephah, of fine flour, mixed with one-fourth of a hin of oil, such shall be with his proffering. And one-fourth of a hin of wine is a drink offering. You shall prepare with the burnt offering or the sacrifice. For each lamb, such will then be. Suffice. Or for a ram you shall prepare as a grain offering, two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour, so you shall do, mixed with one-third of a hen of oil, as I am now instructing you. And as a drink offering you shall offer according to this word, one-third of a hen of wine, as a sweet aroma, to the Lord. And when you prepare a young bull as a burnt offering, or as a sacrifice to fulfill a vow, or as a peace offering to the Lord, as I am instructing you now, then shall be offered with the young bull a grain offering of three tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a half a hin of oil, according to this word. And you shall bring as the drink offering half a hin of wine, as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Thus it shall be done for each young bull, please take note, for each ram or for each lamb or young goat. According to the number that you prepare, so shall it be. So shall you do with everyone according to their number, as is now instructed by me. All who are native born shall do these things in this manner, and according to this word, in presenting an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And if a stranger dwells with you, or whoever is among you throughout your generations, as I am instructing you, and would present an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so shall he do. One ordinance shall be for you of the assembly, and for the stranger who dwells with you according to this word, an ordinance forever throughout your generations, as you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. One law and one custom shall be for you, and for the stranger who dwells with you too. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying these continued words he was to him relaying. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I bring you according to this word... Then it will be when you eat of the bread of the land that you shall offer up a heave offering to the Lord. You shall offer up a cake of the first of your ground meal as a heave offering. So you shall do as a heave offering of the threshing floor. So shall you offer it up as I am instructing you of the first of your ground meal. You shall give to the Lord a heave offering throughout your generations. According to this word, Lord God. We are even now in a wilderness and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess. And so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this marvelous passage today. Oh, the pictures of Jesus just go on and on. Then what a hope we have in him. If it's true about the old, then what is said in the new is all the more certain. We have a hope of glory, which is right, right in front of us, waiting for us to just enter into it. And whenever this veil of tears is behind us and we walk for our last time on this land, we know that we have a better land that we're going to walk on that will take away any of the bad memories that we possess of this place. What a hope we have. And Lord, you certainly remember each of the people that we mentioned at the beginning of this uh, meeting today, this gathering of saints, and you know the other people that were left unstated for whatever reason. Maybe I forgot or maybe they didn't send something to me, but they're going through their own struggles. Lord, be with them, guide them, help them to feel your presence with them through their troubles and preferably to be relieved of their troubles. But we leave these things in your capable hands because we know that what you have ordained is right. And so we love you, we praise you, we exalt you, and we thank you that we can suffer for the name of Christ and we can also find joy and relief in the name of Christ our Lord. And it's in his beautiful name we pray, Amen. amen.